Good morning. It is good to be with you uh, again this morning uh, to have the opportunity to try to deliver a word from the Lord. Uh, it is a, a task that is not easy to do. Uh, there's a huge responsibility to try to speak to a large uh, group of people. But thank you uh, for allowing me to do so the last uh, few weeks. Uh, I appreciate all of the compliments. I appreciate the encouragement. Um, it has been good. And at the same time, I know how uh, wonderful it's going to be for all of us uh, when Chris is back next week and we get to hear from Chris again, uh, as he has been a blessing to this congregation for so many years. Um, and uh, it'll be good to see him again and be with him and worship with him again. Uh, but thank you for allowing me this time uh, to have a few weeks uh, to share my heart and to share what I hope has been a word from the Lord uh, for each of you. And so as we finish up today, as we kind of wrap up this conversation of costly grace, I uh, want you to turn back, uh, we've been in the Old Testament the last couple of weeks, but turn back to the New Testament to 2 Corinthians. If you would turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Second Corinthians chapter 3, starting in verse 12, the word of the Lord this morning. Since then we have such a hope, we act with great boldness. Not like Moses who put a veil over his face to keep the people of Israel from gazing at the end of the glory that was being set aside. But their minds were hardened. Indeed, to this very day, when they hear the reading of the Old Covenant, that same veil is still there, since only in Christ is it set aside. Indeed, to this very day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their minds. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And all of us with unveiled faces, seeing the glory of the Lord as though reflected in a mirror, are being transformed into the image, into the same image, from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, the Spirit. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. A sign hangs on the wall of the new monastic community house which reads, Everyone wants a revolution. No one wants to do the dishes. Many of us have dreams of doing something big for God, dreams to change the world. We see injustice around us, and we want to make a difference and help make the world a better place. We seek to bring good news to the poor, release of the captives, to bind up the brokenhearted and to let the oppressed go free. We see the struggles of those we love, and we want to support them and love them and be present for them. We want to surround the family in pain, sit and mourn with those who are in need of God's comfort, support and love those fighting through addictions. Many of us look around us to mentors and guides who are clearly closer to God than we are, and we marvel at their faith and we long for the same type of spiritual maturity. We long to be in tune with the Spirit, to deepen our prayer life, to trust God and not lose hope during the midst of the storm. We look around us, and we know the world is not the way it should be. The world is not the beautiful creation God originally intended. Sin has broken our world. Sin has corrupted the good, distorting that which God has made just enough so that what God made, which should be life-giving, becomes life-taking. 
but we trust in the promises of God and in the coming of the new creation. We trust that one day the world will be made right, that sin will be destroyed, that the beast will be cast into the abyss of the sea, and the reign and the rule of God will come fully in this place. We believe the world will be beautiful again, and we long to see that day. We long for God's kingdom to come on earth as it already is in heaven. We long for the world here and now to be filled with truth and righteousness and love. And we, we want to be part of the revolution. To take up our calling as God's image bearers, taking God into the dark corners of the world and bringing light into the darkness. We want to join God's mission of redeeming and restoring that which is lost. To save life, to make beauty return. We want to start ministries and see lives being changed. We long for the revolution, but at some point we have to realize the revolution isn't going to happen on its own. We aren't going to magically become the people God has called us and created us to be without doing the daily simple tasks of washing the dishes and taking care of the daily chores of life that help form us into the people God longs for us to be. It's the daily task, the disciplines, the moment-by-moment mundane chores which God uses to slowly transform us and slowly transform the world. And sometimes, sometimes the revolution of changing the world and making it beautiful begins with the simple chore of washing the dishes. The scene was unimaginable. A true sight to behold. This was the stuff of legends. This was the type of scene only found in the most intense blockbuster movies. Even in an age with advanced special effects which continue to wow us and hold us spellbound, this scene would have been almost impossible to create. The Israelites were encamped around the mountain. Just weeks before, they were still slaves in Egypt, the most powerful nation in the world. Just weeks before, they were still pawns of Pharaoh, doing Pharaoh's building, making bricks, and building structures, some of which still stand to this day. Just months before, they were crying out to God for deliverance, having watched their babies be cast into the Nile and lamenting another generation lost to the horrors of slavery. Just months before, the idea of God sending plague upon plague against Egypt over an extended period of time and bringing Pharaoh in Egypt to its knees seemed unimaginable. This was before the Nile had been turned into blood, before the frogs and the gnats and the locust invasion, before the skin boils and the hail which destroyed the crops and the herds, and before the periods of darkness which were so black you couldn't see your hand when it was right in front of your face. Back before Israel understood the power of God, any sort of escape from Egypt seemed like a fiction tale, a made-up story with no hope of ever coming to pass. But those days, those days are in the past because Israel now sits encamped at the foot of the mountain and experiencing the power of God. Truth be told, Israel is encamped at the foot of the mountain precisely because of the power of God. Israel is free from Egyptian slavery because God rescued them with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Israel has now witnessed the plagues on Egypt and the mighty power of God. Israel has seen the Nile turn to blood and the land invaded with gnats and frogs and grasshoppers. Israel experienced hail falling from the skies, destroying crops and livestock, and they heard the cries of the Egyptians as they suffered through the plague 
of painful boils, and Israel experienced the darkness. Both the darkness when the sun stopped shining and the world was pitch black every hour of the day, as well as the darkness in the lives of the Egyptians as they awoke to discover that every firstborn male in every household had been struck down by the death angel. Every household, from the lowest servant to the throne room of Pharaoh. And if the plagues were not enough to display God's power, Israel had witnessed just days before a sight like no other. As Moses held his staff over the Red Sea, and Israel watched as all through the night the wind blew, and what had once been an unmovable barrier of water trapping them and dooming them to destruction split apart and became their redemption story as Israel walked through the waters of the sea on dry ground. This is Israel sits encamped at the, at the foot of the mountain. They know the very power of God. They have seen it firsthand. And after everything that they've experienced and everything they've witnessed, it is this moment that causes them to fear. This moment that causes them to back away. This moment that drives them to say, God is too powerful. We cannot be in God's presence and live. Moses, you go talk to God. We're staying right here. Israel sits encamped at the foot of the mountain. And Mount Sinai, the same space where Moses declared a year earlier that God had spoken to him through a burning bush. And though on fire, the bush did not burn up. And now Moses is getting ready to go up the mountain and spend time with God. But not to experience God through a bush. Instead, to experience God face to face. Before heading up the mountain to meet with God, Moses sets limits and barriers around the mountain, instructing Israel not to come any closer or they might die because God is coming down on the mountain, and it will be a sight like no other. As God is coming down, there is thunder and lightning piercing the sky while smoke begins to rise up from the ground and starts circling the mountain, wrapping around the mountain like the smoke of a kiln. And as the thunder and the lightning pierce the sky and the smoke rises up from the ground, a wind like a mighty earthquake begins to shake the mountain violently. And there is a loud trumpet blast, so loud that everyone in the camp hears the trumpet blast and trembles at its sound. The blast of the trumpet begins to grow louder and louder. And then God begins to speak out of the storm. God's voice audibly speaks out of the storm. And Moses answers. God and Moses are having a conversation that everyone in the camp can hear. And as the trumpet continues to blast and the smoke continues to rise and the storm continues to shake the mountain, God calls for Moses to come up the mountain. And as Moses climbs up the mountain, a thick cloud envelops the mountain, and the glory of the Lord shone around it like a devouring fire, and the entire community saw the glory of the Lord. And finally, after many days, Moses comes back down from the mountain. He comes down with two stone tablets inscribed by the very finger of God with the Ten Commandments. He comes down to share the commands of God with the people of Israel, to call them into covenant faithfulness, to instruct them in the ways of God so that they can be the people of God as a royal priesthood and a holy nation, to lead them and ultimately to guide them to the promised land, their inheritance. Finally, after many days, Moses comes down from the mountain and he comes down changed. His face is glowing. Like those teddy bears that maybe you gave your children that they could squeeze at night and their face would glow. Moses' face was glowing. 
Moses had been in the very presence of God, and it changed him, causing the skin on his face to glow. At first, Aaron and the rest of the nation are afraid of this, and who wouldn't be? They hid in fear. This would be the strangest sight you could imagine, but Moses assures them it's safe, and he had them come back and gather around so that he could speak to them the very words of God. And as he spoke, his face continued to glow from being in the presence of God. However, because the people were afraid, after speaking to the people, Moses put a veil over his face to hide his changed face from the people. This then became Moses' regular practice. He would take the veil off as he entered the presence of God to speak with God. And after relaying the message to the people, Moses would cover his face again with a veil. Moses had been in the presence of God, and it had changed him. It's hard to be in the presence of God and not change. One almost has to try to put forth an effort in the opposite direction to be in God's presence and not at least be slightly changed. I mean, we as humans have a natural tendency to end up acting like those we are around. Spend enough time with Taylor Swift fans and you'll eventually begin to appreciate at least some of her music. Buy a condo in downtown Knoxville and live for a few seasons and you'll at least find yourself pulling for the Vols part of the time. Grab a cup of coffee, sit down with a friend as they go on and on discussing their new favorite Netflix show they've been binge-watching, and you'll most likely find yourself at least slightly intrigued enough to watch at least the first episode to see what all the rage is about. We have a natural tendency as humans to end up acting like those we are around. And if we do that with music and TV shows and sports teams, how much more is this true when considering being in the presence of the very God of the universe? Even if we don't try, even if we don't put forth an effort, if we place ourselves in God's presence, we will be changed. We can't avoid it. And if transformation happens naturally, even without trying from being in God's presence, imagine the type of transformation that can happen if we actually try. Imagine the type of transformation that can happen in our lives when we intentionally place ourselves in God's presence. Imagine if we allow God's presence to dig deeper into our lives, to penetrate into our hearts and our souls, to rid us of our idols and slowly transform us into the image of God. And while it most likely comes across as cliche and churchy to say so, one of the main ways we're able to accomplish this task of intentionally placing ourselves in God's presence is through the practice of spiritual disciplines. Spiritual disciplines have sometimes been clouded in mystery and viewed with skepticism in our religious history. Bible study has always been very important because it fits into our intellectual, academic way of thinking and approaching God. In a faith built on making sure we do the correct things to please God, Bible study has been essential. And prayer has also been a staple over the years for those times when life throws us a curveball and we don't know what to do and we can't fix the problem on our own. Plus, there are lots of examples in the Bible of prayer for us to follow. But other disciplines, like fasting, meditation, solitude, silence, detachment, centering prayer, contemplation, these feel more ancient and uncivilized and don't seem to fit in our modern, overly connected, overly worked, overly stressed out culture. We don't have time for these, and we don't see them clearly in Scripture, so we've tended to shy away from them. But what the desert fathers and mothers have taught us and shown us is that there are ways to open ourselves up to God and make ourselves available to God's life-changing and transforming power that will allow the Spirit of God to slowly mold us in the image of God to make us more like Christ. 
And by embracing these practices, these disciplines, and making them a regular part of our daily rhythm, it puts us in a position where we can see the presence of God and thus be changed. Because the truth is, God is always present. We just don't always look. It was Wednesday. I had just dropped my girls off at elementary school and headed over to the church building to get started on my workday. The building was often very quiet at 8 o'clock in the morning, which provided an ideal time to get lots of planning and prep done before anyone else showed up. It was Wednesday, which meant it was sermon writing day for me, which often meant becoming a recluse and hiding myself in my office, plugging away with Bible and notes, seeking a word for the Lord to deliver on Sunday. My office did not have a window, and often I would get in there and shut the door completely and zone out to the rest of the world as I wrestled with the text for Sunday. That's what was happening on this particular day. As I typed away on my sermon for a couple of hours until my phone started receiving multiple text messages, school is being closed for inclement weather. We are dismissing now. Come pick up your children. I looked at my phone in shock. What in the world are they talking about? Why are we canceling school? The day was perfectly fine two hours ago. This is Chattanooga. How bad could the weather really get in two hours in the middle of February? I reluctantly grabbed my keys and headed for the door. And once I emerged from my cave of an office and stepped out to where there was actually a window with light coming in, I was surprised to see snow falling heavily outside and already starting to accumulate on the ground. This wasn't normal Chattanooga snow that is a slight dusting that causes roads to be closed, but is really no big deal. This was real snow. This was northern snow, the snow we used to have in Ohio growing up. This snow really was going to shut the roads down and become dangerous to drive upon. And it had obviously been snowing for a while, but I had no idea because I was encased in a room with no window. Had I had a window, I would have easily noticed what was happening right outside my office walls. But because I had no window, I missed it all. I quickly ran back inside, grabbed everything I needed to work from home for a couple of days. Because let's be honest, we don't always clean the roads very well in the south. And I headed out into the snow to get my girls from school and drive us safely home. As I was passing cars stuck on the side of the road, I recognized the truth in that moment. There's nothing magical about a window. But they are wonderful tools for seeing the world around us. Windows don't create the outside world. The world is all around us constantly. But what windows allow us to do is to see the outside world, to see the sun or the rain, the trees and the flowers, to witness the creation around us, or on this particular day, to simply see the snow. Spiritual disciplines work in a similar way. There's nothing magical about spiritual disciplines. There's nothing magical about prayer or meditation or fasting or silence or solitude. There's not a magic formula or a secret workout plan to build your spiritual muscles. Instead, spiritual disciplines are a tool which allow us to see God and be in God's presence. The truth is, God is always present and God is always working. There's not a day or a moment when God is not around. However, We often place ourselves in rooms surrounded by walls, and we get so involved in our work or in our families or in our hobbies that we become unaware of what is happening right outside the walls of our lives. But spiritual disciplines serve as windows, giving us the opportunity to look outside for just a moment to see what God is up to. 
And just like a window allows us to see when it is snowing outside or when it is sunny, spiritual disciplines allow us to slow down for just a moment and place ourselves in the presence of God and allow God's transforming power to sweep over us and flow into us and change us from one degree of glory to another. Spiritual disciplines, however, take time. There's not a magic formula. You don't fast one day and immediately be able to say no to sin and no to temptations the next. You don't spend 15 minutes in silence and then be able to adequately hear the voice of the Lord in your life. Detaching from your phone for an hour doesn't mean you'll be completely in tune with the Spirit that afternoon. There's not a 30-day plan to a robust prayer life or a 13-week plan to guarantee spiritual formation. Disciplines take time. Spiritual formation takes time. It's a daily rhythm, a weekly rhythm that slowly over time opens us up to God's transforming power in our lives. And while we all want to be on-fire disciples for God, who are smashing down the idols and trusting God through the silence, we have to recognize it doesn't happen in a day or a week. And we need to ask ourselves, while we want the revolution and we want the change, are we willing to put in the daily practices and work through the daily grind to get to where we want to be? In essence... Are we willing to sit around and just be content today to do the dishes? I love the idea of running a marathon. I've been a long-distance runner since I started running cross-country in the seventh grade, and I've been running ever since. Except for a couple of years in college when I was a lazy freshman, running has been my go-to exercise, and I love to go out and run. I do a lot of thinking on my runs. I listen to podcasts and audiobooks, and I've even been known to work through a sermon and class idea on my runs. A typical run for me at this point is about four miles, and while I've slowed down some since high school, I can still get about an eight-minute mile, which for me, I'm pretty happy with. I don't run a lot of road races, partially because I'm cheap, and I don't want to pay the money to run the road race. But I do typically run one longer race once a year. I've run a half marathon. I've run a few 15Ks or 10-mile races. But the long-distance race I've never run is a marathon. I really love the idea of running a marathon. And there have been a few times when I've looked at specific marathons and made plans to sign up. Because of my personality, I'm fully aware that once I sign up, and especially once I pay the money, I will train and prepare and run the race. And I'll most likely feel very proud at the end of it and be able to mark this off my bucket list. However, As of this point in my life, I've never signed up to run a marathon yet. I've thought about it, and I think it comes down to this really important truth. While I love the idea of running a marathon, I don't love the idea of training for a marathon. I've been an experienced runner for a long time, and I'm fully aware I'm not ready to run a marathon tomorrow. While I can pull off a 15K without too much effort, a marathon is going to include weeks and most likely months of training. There are going to be Saturdays where I have to get up and do 13, 15, 18-mile runs as I build up strength and stamina endurance. And there will be days when I'm running just for running's sake. And that doesn't seem appealing to me at the moment. So while I love the thought of running a marathon, I don't love the thought of training for a marathon. And until I'm willing to be disciplined enough to train for a marathon, it'll remain a dream that hopefully one day I'll fulfill. Cheap grace 
is the deadly enemy of our church. We are fighting today for costly grace. With those words, Dietrich Bonhoeffer began his classic work, The Cost of Discipleship, in which he challenged his German contemporaries to not settle for culturally acceptable type of discipleship that follows Jesus without any change in lifestyle, but to instead embrace a radical form of discipleship that is willing to pick up your cross and follow Jesus on a wild journey of life transformation. And with those words, we began a discussion just a few weeks ago centered around the challenge to take the call of Jesus seriously in a way that encouraged us to do the hard work of dying to self and living completely for God. We talked about taking up our cross. We talked about smashing the idols. We talked about remaining faithful through the silence of God. And in the midst of that, if we aren't careful, it's easy to settle for pie in the sky, loving the theoretical conversations of what is an idol, and when is God silent, and what exactly is radical faith. And we all dream of being on fire for God and starting a revolution and changing the world. And most likely, we're already at the invitation song to stand up and declare, we accept costly grace today. But in doing so, we sometimes forget to remind ourselves that God doesn't transform us instantly. We aren't baptized and automatically transformed into perfect representations of Jesus Christ. It's a journey. It's a process. Day after day after day, week after week after week, year after year after year, where we are slowly transformed in the image of Christ from one degree of glory to another. That's why Paul's message in 2 Corinthians is so helpful. Yes, he's ultimately engaged in a much deeper conversation about the old covenant and the new covenant, but what he shares in verse 18 is so helpful for all of us as we think about spiritual formation and discipleship and costly grace. And all of us with unveiled faces, seeing the glory of the Lord as though reflected in a mirror, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord the Spirit. Spiritual disciplines allow us to take off the veil and see God. To see God working and living and speaking around us. And as we see God's face through the daily and the weekly practice of the disciplines, we encounter the presence of God, and we are slowly transformed into God's image from one degree of glory to another. It's not a magic formula, and yet there is a transforming power that happens in life as we practice the discipline of intentionally placing ourselves in the presence of God every single day day. Just like when Moses was on the mountain, we can't help but be changed when we find ourselves in the presence of God. You want a revolution? Start by doing the dishes. You want to be more like God and embrace costly discipleship? Develop a daily rhythm of practicing spiritual disciplines, and as you see the glory of God, you will be transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May he give you peace. We now have the opportunity to have kind of an invitation. It's somewhat of a tradition, uh, and yet it's also a great opportunity because you never know what God has been speaking into your lives. Uh, if you would like to take on Christ in baptism, we would love to, to spend some little extra time in here today uh, and witness that. Or if maybe the Spirit has just spoken to your heart today, 
Uh, maybe you need to confess something to God. Maybe you need to, to speak with one of the elders. Some of the elders will be in the back. Or maybe you just need to grab the person beside you and say, hey, can we talk after, after this is all over? Or can we go grab a cup of coffee this week and just share what's on your heart? Or if nothing else, maybe this song right here can just be your prayer, your invitation, as you lift up your voice and lift up your life and rededicate yourself to God. Uh, if you would, let's stand and sing.